and welcome to Connections Radio Show, where we talk about ideas that matter. I'm glad you've made the connection and are with us today. I'm Laurie Fitz, your host, and the goal of our show is to explore a wide range of topics that challenge us to see ourselves, our community, and the world around us in ways that get us thinking, get us connected, and perhaps inspired or challenged to do just a bit more because we made the connection. Our show today is co-produced with our partners, the Reviving the Islamic Sisterhood for Empowerment. That's the RISE Group. And joining me as co-hosts on Connections today is Asma Mohammed, who is the Advocacy Director at RISE, and Aisha Abdullahi, at, who is our Civic Engagement Coordinator at RISE. Welcome. I'm glad you're both here today as my co-hosts. Thank you, Lori. We're excited to be here. Oh, it's wonderful to have you. And in our first segment, we're going to be talking about the 2021 legislative session recap. Aisha, give us uh, give us and our audience a quick recap of the 2021 legislative session. It was a busy one for you guys, and you had some really important legislative priorities at Rise. Yeah, for sure. Uh, this legislative session was uh, unique in a sense because. Uh, they were convening with the complex capital situation that was going on with the capital being close to the public, as well as remote committee hearings and many discussions taking place online. And um, that didn't allow for uh, members like us and other lobbyists and to kind of advocate for ourselves at the end of the day. And it made it really challenging. Um, while bills were introduced at a normal pace, this budget year, um, only 31 bills were um, enacted into law by May 17th, which is actually an all-time low um, compared to previous years. But for us, particularly at RISE, we were following several bills across the board, um, from homelessness to public safety, education attainment, um, nonprofit infrastructure, uh, hate crimes bill. There were so many that we were involved in, really to connect our communities and give back to those that... um, to give back to what our community was very interested and passionate about. I have a follow-up question for you, Aisha. You mentioned that it was difficult, of course, with the Capitol um, not being open. So how did you do your lobbying? What what ways did you see um, available that you found effective in being able to, to share in your concerns about uh, the various issues that you just shared about? Yeah, for sure. Um, luckily, I had the opportunity to testify um, really connect with legislators um, on the side to do one-on-one meetings with them. Um, it was kind of grasping as many opportunities to connect with legislators as possible. And so for me, it was just getting in those meetings and getting the opportunities when we did get the opportunities to testify, to take advantage of those and really um, express our concerns and our needs um, in that short span of time that we were provided. And so it was just taking advantage of all the little moments we were granted um, to do as much advocacy and push as possible. Were there any takeaway uh, lessons learned in in having that uh, limited uh, access, That, but there were some things that you learned that you may want to continue to do that will help you in the future? Um, I definitely think like taking more time to connect with legislators on a personal level is very important. And I think uh, for so long, we would just try and get on their calendars. And I think this allowed us to have that one-on-one connection and 
personalized conversations. And so I definitely think moving on in the future um, to create more opportunities and connect with more legislators. And Asmo, so what happened to the bills that, that RISE was following? Um, so, I mean, we were, as Aisha mentioned, we were following several bills. There were some that moved forward and uh, kind of fell through at the last minute, and there were some that I don't think are going to get any um, face time really in the Senate until um, there is a significant DFL majority. Um, because even though RISE is nonpartisan, uh, I think a lot of what we've been hearing from many of our people in the House and Senate um, is unfortunately very partisan. So we we do work with um, both sides of the aisle, but yeah, like I said, unfortunately, it doesn't seem to, we don't seem to get the same kind of uh, interactions with one side as we do with the other. Mm-hmm. So that really led to a lot of stalling in the Senate um, because there was so much constant arguing over you know taking emergency powers away from the governor that was going on every every other day um people arguing about mask mandates in the senate because there were people that didn't want to wear them around their colleagues even though they weren't vaccinated it was just a mess all around and i think what ended up happening was you know they they used their interpersonal disputes to stall bills that should have been resolved this year. So one thing that happened, for example, with the hate crimes bill that we've been working on for a couple of years, didn't move. It went to um, the Public Safety Committee in the House. After that, it didn't move through the Senate. Um, we saw that with homelessness as well. There's actually this year was the first year of a task force um, to end homelessness. And um, Representative Aisha Gomez is the chair of that task force, and she you know, did a really great job in, in trying to support folks who are experiencing homelessness. And there are several bills that, you know, didn't go through there. Um, but there, we'll talk a little bit more about this in the next segment. One bill that we've been working on for four years did pass. Um, and I'll share more about the journey um, and, you know, what that looked like over the past four years and even this year. But it was, it was I, as I mentioned, it was really difficult getting in touch with legislators because every because in the past, you know, you could just show up at their office, mm-hmm. talk to them a little bit. This year, it was either you get invited to a Zoom <laughs> meeting or you don't. Mm-hmm. Um, or you can just attend via, you know, you could watch the live YouTube streaming of whatever committee was happening at the moment. Otherwise, you were kind of left out of the process. So there, and, but the other thing that I recognize is that the Capitol has not been accessible for a lot of folks with disabilities. And for those folks, now they were getting to see, people were getting to see for the first time what it's like to not be able to attend mm-hmm. committee hearings. And so everyone was required to attend from afar. So I think that was important for us to recognize as well and um, seeing that these, these meetings were not created for everybody. And, you know, there was a way to make that more equitable. And part of that means always, always making these available online, always making participation available online. Well, that was going to be part of my question as well uh, that I had asked Aisha. It's, it, mm-hmm. it's good to see, you know, when we have these challenging times, are there potential lessons learned? Are there things that Absolutely. we can apply to the future? And I love, you know, the idea that everyone becoming much more aware of the challenges 
of disabilities mm-hmm. and having access. Were there other things that came to you as aha moments that you'll take forward in looking at um, the legislative process in the future? I so I don't know about you, but for me, um, I think that because we were following the bills online, it was we just were tracking in a different way. Mm-hmm. Before, you know, it was we were seeing them happen in person. I was at the Capitol every day throughout the week. If you remember over the past few years, Laura, yeah, you mentioned the sure spring did. was always full. But this year, it was you know we're just kind of sitting back, and it got to be overwhelming when you're constantly just watching videos of people online. It doesn't even feel real anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the lesson there is that these. These interactions that we have with people are so important to how our legislators work and how we understand the law that's being created. Um, And when you're not having those interactions, you feel completely, I think, disillusioned Mm -hmm. and disheartened by the process because it feels like a game almost (laughs) because you're watching it through a screen, Um, even though it has to do with people's lives. So that's one thing that I'm going to remember that we we do still need to feel connected to the people that are that are working for us, and there has to be yeah. a better way to do it. Definitely, similar to Esma's experience, I think when I had the opportunity to be at the Capitol, I could read legislators' faces and reactions throughout the testimonies and um, really build a connection with them. Um, even sitting in the audience versus kind of some of them having their cameras off during committee hearings. So I wouldn't even know how engaged they were, how they were paying attention during committee hearings. And so this experience for me really taught like access to our legislators is very important as well as really being able to build those relationships and reading people's body languages. Like that allows you to understand how they're reacting and how they're feeling about um bills and legislation that you are passionate about at the end of the day. I think the good thing was, as Asma mentioned, definitely like how inaccessible um, getting to the Capitol can be. So I had worked with young women um, in greater Minnesota throughout this past session. And I think for them, it was an opportunity to kind of participate and see what session is actually like um, in real time. And so I think this is something that if we could incorporate into future having a virtual option so that not only can they just watch, but also participate and testify and things like that. Well, in our next segment, we're going to be celebrating uh, work that was done for four years to get a bill passed. And it's finally passed. And we'll we'll hear from... um, Asma about the work that that she did on this bill. She mentioned that uh, it was very special to her and that she had worked on it for a long time. So we're gonna we're gonna leave that. So you need to come back and hear uh, Asma's journey and and the four years that she worked on to get a very important bill passed. And we'll celebrate with her in our next segment. So thanks for li- listening to Connections Radio Show here on AM nine fifty, the Progressive Voice of Minnesota. And we'll be right back. Back to Connections Radio Show, where we talk about ideas that matter. Our show today is co-produced with our partners, the Reviving the Islamic Sisterhood for Empowerment, RISE. And joining me on co-host, as co-host today on Connections, is Asma Mohammed, who is the Advocacy Director at RISE, and Aisha Abdullahi, who is the Civic Engagement Coordinator. Welcome. I'm so glad you're both here today. Hey, Lori. 
Hey. So in this segment, I promised the audience to talk about uh, a very special bill that, Asma, you've been working on for four years. Tell us about that. Yeah. So four years ago, um, maybe a little bit longer, actually, but just about four years ago, um, I was hanging out with a friend um, named Sarah Super, who is the founder of Break the Silence. Um, which is an organization, an advocacy organization for survivors of sexual violence. And um, she and I are both survivors. So we met through our survivorship. And we were talking about, you know, different changes that we'd hope to see in Minnesota. And one of the things that she mentioned was the statute of limitations, which I had no idea about. So she was telling me about this bill, or she was telling me about this policy. And I was like, well, have you ever tried to change it? And she's like, I mean, I'd love to, just don't really know how. And I was like, I do. (laughs) So um, I went and called my friend Ilhan and asked her if she'd be willing to author. And she's like, come in, let's talk about it. So Sarah and I went into her office that year. um, I think it was in January. And, you know, told her about what we were hoping to do. And she said she would author it. So that was our very first year in um, authoring or being part of trying to get that bill passed. So we had our very first press conference. I still remember it was on March 8th Mm -hmm. and it was, you know, it was really important that we were, we were doing something that had never been done. We were talking about something that's never been done and we were building coalition. So we were talking to people um, from all different kinds of organizations, you know, but related to sexual violence and Mm -hmm. advocacy um, to get them to support it. So um, we continued working on it. That year it didn't pass. The next year we asked, um, because Ilhan had gone to Congress at that point, we asked uh, Representative Aisha Gomez to offer the bill, and she obliged. Um, this time it went to the Public Safety and Judiciary Committee, um, or Public Safety Committee in the House, which is a joint committee. We got a lot of crap from <laughs> both sides of the aisle, and uh-huh. um, it, was, it was really hard. So at that point, we didn't know what to expect, but we were hoping, you know, that it would end up passing. Um, That year was definitely difficult. And um, the following year, we just, it was back with um, Representative Gomez. And we went to committee again. Um, It got pushed into an omnibus that didn't get passed. And we were starting to kind of lose hope in the bill. I remember remember how disappointed you were because you had worked so hard. And it just, it wasn't, it wasn't happening. And no, it it took a lot of perseverance. Yeah. Yeah. It kept getting pushed out of the way for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. Um, If there were, you know, Democrats or Republicans who didn't agree on it, or if they just thought it wasn't the right time, even though it's a, um, the bill would eliminate the statute of limitations at the time. And we, uh, we were hoping it would be perspective, not retroactive. So it would be people who are assaulted in the future because we, we know assaults happens, mm-hmm. they would be allowed for report at any time in their lifetime. So we were really hoping it would it would pass that year, and it didn't. Mm. Then um, this year, we honestly, we were thinking that we might not even work on it. We were just so tired yeah. <laughs> being pushed to the wayside. Well, it's such a disappointment, and it's like, yeah. how do you keep getting yourself geared up for you know the good fight? Uh, when yeah. when you've had so many years of, of not being heard. Exactly. And so this year, um, Representative Athena Hollins, who is new to the House, 
um, took it on because Representative Gomez had so much going on with the homelessness committee that she was on and said that, you know, she thought that Representative Hollins could give more energy to it at this point. So we said, great, um, you know, but we we don't expect anything, even though we've been, because we've, we've been fighting for so long. We're like, we'll still testify. We'll do everything we can. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we're not going to get our hopes up this time because we know what heartbreak feels like. Yeah. Yeah. And for, for how many, three years in a row, right? Yeah, exactly. And so it went to committee again. And for the first time, every single person on that committee voted for it to go into the, into, um, the next committee. Oh my! Gosh. So it was unanimously passed through committee, which rarely happens um, in that committee because it's so contentious all the time. It's very, mm-hmm. very, it's like, a, <laughs> it's very tense sure. in that committee most of the time. And so it passed unanimously. Do you think it was because people, there, there was more time for people to really process it because of some of the restrictions and the different way that, that the law was being built this year? Was was there more reflection, more understanding of how important this was? What, what What's your, your read on why not only was it heard, but it was so unanimously, unanimously supported? Well, I think one thing that was really helpful is we actually had a representative um, in committee this year who has not been in this committee in past years who shared that they had been assaulted as well. Oh. And it was a man. Oh, my gosh. And he he mentioned that it wasn't something that he often shared with people. And he said that, that something like this would have changed his life. Um, and he, he shared, so he shared that with us and said, you know, what they're doing is commendable. Um, and I want to see this happen. And he was like, and if you don't want this to pass then talk to me. And so there were people, um, there were Republicans, especially who, you know, who had opposed this in the past and cited false accusations for the reason why they didn't want this to pass, who finally realized and I think, unfortunately, it took for them to hear from a white man mm-hmm. to realize that they that they needed to do it because they had been hearing from me and from Sarah for years. And, um, yeah, so they heard that story and they knew that it could have changed lives and it mm-hmm. still has the opportunity to change lives in the future. And um, I think the, the thing is, like, they didn't want to say to their own committee member, like, we don't believe you, and we wouldn't support you. Wow. But it does speak to the the work in building alliances. And sometimes Absolutely. alliances are not what you expect. And yeah. and yet the, the goal of how to create law together and, and come together on a platform that, make, that, that everyone can commit to, I mean, is to be celebrated. Uh, I am sorry that you were not heard in the the powerful way, but I am glad that your goal has been achieved and that you did no, what but you I needed mean, to do. In yeah. committee, yeah, in committee, though, it was beautiful after speaking. So he shared and then I spoke. Mm-hmm. And just I started getting messages privately from most of the committee members just thanking me and saying, you've been here year after year. And I'm, I'm proud of you for, for continuing this. So I think there was even that just hearing from from those committee members was really helpful um, and, you know, validating. But then it passed through the committee, went to the omnibus bill and the omnibus bill included that. So it wasn't it wasn't going to be included in the omnibus bill because things kept getting cut. Mm -hmm. Then last minute, Senator Sandy Pappas, 
who is a great progressive fighter in the Senate, um, who had authored the bill in the Senate a few years ago, the very first year we had it with Ilhan, if you remember back then. Yeah. Um, she asked for this to be included as an amendment. Good for her. So, Good for her. And yeah, and so it was. It was included, and it was just incredible. Like because you think you think of all the people who have been involved over the years. Yeah. Everyone kind of came together in this at some point, oh. um, and it passed. So it was. It was a long journey, worth it because now people who are assaulted have their whole lifetime to report if they want to. And it, it people process differently in different time, and exactly. when you're ready is when you're ready. And, yeah. and putting a time constraint has never made any sense to me. So thank you yeah. for all your your wonderful efforts to help support survivors. And Aisha, what are some lessons for organizing um, that that we can take from this? That you know, and four years was a long time, and and we heard right from Asma that you know, you get to a point where you're disappointed. You know, how, how do you keep? Um, applying yourself to things that, that you believe in. And, and I think just having this story is a one way of getting people um, feeling good about what they do, even if it doesn't happen in, in the first one or two years. It's, it's taken Asma four years. Uh, but what are some other lessons that we can apply, do you think? Yeah, for sure. I think Asma's story and her process through this shows that like things don't change overnight when it comes to policy, but the fight is worth it for the outcome you could receive one day. And so for me, I was inspired because I know at times in the society we live in and the way we move, we expect instant changes and we expect things to just happen overnight. And this was like an eye-opening experience being like, things may not change at the pace that you want them to, but they can change if you continue fighting for it. And also shows that like it's important, and especially as advocates and legislators that um, and people that are in the community that we need to continue reaching out and expanding our coalitions and expanding those um, who we include in our process because it the one change that happened this year made the biggest difference um, for this bill. And so, I think expanding and continue to fight and continue to grow and advocate also include others and bring people upon, um, into the journey will then one day give the results that you were fighting for. And that is super um, exciting and eye-opening for me. Well, that leads us into our next segment, uh, a promo for our next segment, as we look at Yes for Minneapolis, which is really about the collaborative work that you're doing and your alliances getting built um, together uh, to help make a difference in Minneapolis. So I look forward to talking about that. We'll be back uh, in shortly. I look forward to hearing more about Yes for Minneapolis and the work that's being done. Welcome back to Connections Radio Show, where we talk about ideas that matter. Our show today is co-produced with our partners, the Reviving the Islamic Sisterhood for Empowerment. That's the RISE Group. And joining me as co-hosts on today's show is Asma Mohammed. She is the Advocacy Director at RISE. And Aisha Abdullahi, who is the Civic Engagement Coordinator. Welcome. Hi, Lori. Hi there. You know, we had a little um, interesting after segment uh, two, we had a very long commercial, uh, which means that we are going to be commercial free for the both uh, segment three and four. 
which is great. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. So we get to talk all the way to the end of the show without interruption. <laughs> anyway, in this uh, segment, we did uh, tell the audience about um, the Yes for Minneapolis. So, Aisha, I'd love to have you tell us about the Yes for Minneapolis uh, and this campaign and the coalition that you're working on. Uh, and, and just let us know why and how it was formed. Yeah, um, so Yes for Minneapolis was formed after the murder of George Floyd, um, but has been on the minds of many Minneapolis residents and community members years before that. Um, There was definitely um, opportunities and chances that people tried to have this charter changed, but it just never worked out. And this year, I think we built a strong coalition and had strong leaders uh, in the conversation and proposed a charter amendment that would only happen, that would take place in Minneapolis. And with that, it's um, really the goal is to join forces with the MPD. So we're not asking to abolish the police at the moment. Uh, It's to create a community public safety department so that people in Minneapolis can feel comfortable in their homes and know that in cases of emergency, people that are responding to them are from their community and they are to help and support them and not harm them. And so we're saying just say yes. Um, saying yes to this charter would not abolish the police, but rather create um, a, a force in which would help and support and be a part of the community. It would be more of a partnership, it sounds like, for looking at a whole model, a new model for public safety um, that works in partnership, it, 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 from what I understand, uh, and looking at what are the real needs and I also like using the older term peace officer. I think that has uh, more resonance in a community as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it really depends. Um, so I've been on the coalition since December of last year. And the thing that we've noticed is that people do want to see something different. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that what gets people confused is different language around right. what should happen. Right. For example, people there are people who don't think that the police department deserves another $100 million because they haven't been doing their job, but they have a problem with the term defund the police. Yeah. Right? So there are very, I think language and communication have so much more to do with what people think about what's going to happen than, you know, anything else. So even with this amendment, unfortunately, there have been um, small political action committees that have come up. There's one is called um, All of Minneapolis, but it's not even from Minneapolis. <laughs> um, but one is called All of Minneapolis, and they are argue- they're saying that this amendment would eliminate the police department, and that's not what's happening. And it said that it would eliminate the police chief. No, it just allows people to have a choice. It allows people to choose if they want a police chief or not. It allows people to choose to have a new Department of Public Safety. It doesn't eliminate police officers overnight. There and are, that's, I think, what people are confused about. There are other models of public safety, right? I mean, even yeah. here in Minnesota, there is public safety. I know I live in an area that um, is the Western Hennepin public safety. I mean, it, it mm-hmm. and it, it works in partnership with um, other mechanisms in the the city to, to support, you know, our needs out there. So it's, it's mm-hmm. not like a completely new concept, Right. No, it shouldn't be. And I think one thing that people recognize is that when, for example, if someone's having a mental health crisis, 
you probably don't need 10 cops in five squad cars showing up to your door. You probably want a mental health professional. Um, and maybe if they need someone for safety, they can call for backup, whatever they need. But you don't need those squad cars showing up. Um, and so what this would do is it would allow a public, public health approach to what we understand is public safety right now. Because right now, public safety has literally only met policing, and that shouldn't be the only model. Mm-hmm. So it would be in uh, of the reaction or the response, because all policing right now is reactionary. None of it is actually proactive. So what would happen now is that there would be an appropriate level of response based on the crime or based on whatever is happening. So if someone says that they need support, um, they're calling 911 because someone's having a mental health breakdown and they, they'd want someone there they have the opportunity to actually be in conversation with the people that are supposed to help them rather than have the conversation end in another police killing. And, you know, right? so there, we there, don't want that to happen. No, no. And, and it has happened way too much. Uh, but, yeah. but on the other side, there are law enforcement officers that are, that welcome this because they feel like they've had too much put on them, that there are more expectations. They're not trained in mental health. Mm-hmm. You know, they are trained no. to protect, which is a very important function, but there are other functions needed in the community uh, and that we we shouldn't have expectations that we dump all of this on law enforcement to do. I know that there's some that welcome partnerships so that, you know. Mm, yeah, but I think the way that it's being framed right now has made the current police officers, specifically in Minneapolis, feel like this is attacking mm-hmm. them and everything that they stand for. And what is being attacked is, yeah, the, the department, because it hasn't worked. Why are we spending millions upon millions? It's actually, I think this year, it's $132 million on police. Why are we doing that if our police aren't doing what they should be doing? Right now, um, there is a picture that's circulating on social media from yesterday mm-hmm. of there are like six officers just hanging out in front of the Target on Nicollet Mall. And they're like hanging out. They're just talking, laughing. Um, they're not policing. <laughs> they're yeah. not talking to community members. They're talking amongst themselves. They're stopping traffic because they're standing like, you know, right. uh, or stopping foot traffic because they're standing in the middle of the street. But they're they're not doing anything. And so there isn't really any mechanism in place to hold them accountable either. And because currently the mayor is the only one with authority over the police department, other than the police chief, there we have an elected city council in Minneapolis from different wards. But those city council members can't do a thing about policing right now because the charter only allows for the mayor to have oversight over the police department. So this charter would change that because the Department of Public Safety would be under the purview of the city council. And I think every single person in Minneapolis deserves that. We deserve to have to be actually represented by our city council that we're electing, not just one mayor who is, you know, they, they're not they're not elected from every part of the city. Right. You know, I think what's what moves me is the idea that this is really about public health and how often yeah. we talk about gun violence is really, you know, a health issue. It's gotten to the point where there's, you know, so much. So, you know, how do you de-escalate, you know, and how do we look at the health of the community and what's best? You know, mm-hmm. there are people that are afraid to call the police. They would rather, you know, deal with whatever the violence is than the police because the police pose just as much uh, threat to yeah. them. And that's not about public health. You know, that that's not creating uh, a real sense of safety 
I think, Not at all. I mean, if you can't call the people who are supposedly supposed to serve and protect, then what are they doing? Mm-hmm. And if those people are only responding when they're being called on, that means that we're not taking a public health approach because public health very much looks at the future. It's right. very, you know, it, it doesn't just re- react. It's very proactive. And I so think it's, what it's, we want is something that's proactive. And and re thinking about what is the right size responses when you mentioned you, know, you don't need 10 squad cars pulling up no i mean what mm-hmm. what is the right size response who are the experts Absolutely. that can best deal with de-escalation or support um and what does that look like i think we're we're at a point because of all the things that have happened in this last year including covid and and um and the death of george floyd it's just time to just do a time out and and figure out is this how we want to move forward? You know, can can mm-hmm. we take this time to to rethink about the future? Yeah. So this is on the ballot in November, along with um, you know the city council and the mayor. So Minneapolis has a choice right now, and this doesn't happen in every city. Not every city gets to make decisions like this, but Minneapolis is getting that choice. And what's really unfortunate is the mayor tried to stop this from happening several times, and the courts had to step in and tell him he was wrong. So, you know, we believe that people of Minneapolis are smart and that they can make this decision for themselves. So this is something that's on the ballot. If you want to know more, you can go to our website, revivingsisterhood.org, or look up Yes for Minneapolis, and you can find out more about what the amendment says. Um, But I think it's really important for us to understand that this this would affect our daily lives as people in Minneapolis, this would affect our daily lives, and it would make it possible for us to have a say in what public safety looks like. Well, with that, we also, that leads us into uh, about the elections coming up this fall. So, Aisha, tell us about uh, what Minnesota voters need to know about ranked choice voting and, and issues to keep in mind as we move into our fall elections. Yeah, so municipal elections are coming up. Um Early voting is happening um, in just a couple weeks, actually. It will start that process. But I think certain cities um, are unique in the sense that they actually will be having ranked choice voting. And that would just mean that they are able to rank their top three choices. And then um, based off of those outcomes, um, their elected officials will be selected. And... um, this is a process in which um, people have been fighting for, for a long time, but I believe it's an opportunity to have an equitable election um, in selecting candidates that kind of best fit and align um, with the community's values and needs at the end of the day. And so this um, is an opportunity, particularly for those in Minneapolis, to have a huge change. Um, mayor, city council, park board, and board of um, estimated taxation are all using ranked choice voting this year. Um, and this will be a huge deal, especially when it comes to the mayor and city council positions coming up. Um, and when all your choices matter and all your choices are recognized, it's an opportunity for you to get the candidate that best fits your community needs at the end of the day. Um, And yeah, and so with Minneapolis having the charter on their ballot as well, this is going to be a great um, opportunity to see the changes in the community that we've been asking for this last year and really get the chance for people to take back 
um, their community. And I, I would assume one of the big ones is what we were just talking about in terms of the yes for Minneapolis. But are there other uh, issues that you want to have folks be knowing about that's going to be coming up that, that as we look at being able to redesign um, what the future might be in Minneapolis, what are some of your hopes that may be coming out through through the voting process? Yeah. Um, I'm uh, After reading about all of many of the candidates that are running, um, I'm really excited to see what affordable housing would look like in Minneapolis, what public safety, and I think Esra mentioned this earlier, but control of like the MPD would look like. I think the fact that the mayors um, and the chief are the only two kind of running an entire police department for that represents thousands of people is um, not what it should be. And I think having the city council being involved in that process will allow more voices to be represented in conversations at the end of the day. Um, with that, I think the bounce back of our economy post COVID too, as well, just to see what um, leaders will start providing opportunities, especially for small businesses to kind of uh, come back and grow post COVID. Yeah, and I think another thing that I've been thinking about, um, Morgan, is that, right, so there are, there are so many things happening. I don't know if you all saw yesterday, but the Supreme Court ruled that the eviction moratorium is at an end, meaning that, unfortunately, which is, I mean, it's awful, but people are now, um, landlords can now evict people who aren't able to make payments. And I know that people say, well, it's hard on landlords. Well, there are people who are struggling. People have been laid off nonstop and need support and there is there hasn't been enough support for them i mean we've gotten what like two stimulus checks that's that's nothing for people that are struggling and and, um, the, and what has been offered for both the tenants and for um the landlords is very complicated to figure out and people have mm-hmm. not understood you know what are the options to help support them so yeah that's well yeah and in minneapolis you're seeing that there have been encampments i mean our, our city there shouldn't be over 20 encampments in a city because there there's no affordable housing, right? And that's what happened last summer is people started to see that there are so many people living without homes they, they that don't have that don't have houses because affordable housing is just honestly doesn't exist in Minneapolis anymore. So we need to be able to change that. And so rent stabilization is on the ballot as well. Um, there was there is an amendment um, currently that. There are some city council members that are trying to shoot it down, unfortunately, but rent stabilization would allow for, you know, would tell developers and landlords that they can't keep raising the prices on people mm-hmm. um, whenever they feel like it. So that's something. And then there's the strong mayor amendment, um, which would give more power to the mayor. Um, so if you know me and if you know <laughs> a little bit more about rise, we don't believe in that. We think that city council members should have power as well. And the mayor cannot be the only one with all the power. We don't believe in dictatorships here. So we, we don't want that. Um, so the strong mayor amendment is on the ballot as well. And if you, yeah, again, believe in actual democracy, then, then you know where you stand already. Uh, well, I know that, um, again, I want to thank you for the work that you did on the statute of limitations for reporting sexual violence. And I know that that took thank you. your four years and, and a lot of your heart and your time and your... Um, you know, you just never let go, and I, and I wanted to yeah. thank you for that. Yeah, is there a bill that's similar for you right now that that you're investing in now that you've had um, 
this chance to work these four years on on the reporting of sexual violence? Is there one that that you believe is going to be another long hauler that that you're going to be working on? Oh, we've been on them already. <laughs> yeah. So I mentioned the hate crimes bill yeah. that we've been working on for a couple of years now. So that bill is, oh God, it's going to take a while. <laughs> I know it in my heart because mm-hmm. it's already taken two years yeah. to just get people to start talking about it. But we need more of a bipartisan response with it. I'm sure you can hear my baby screaming in the background, by the way. Well, I'm glad that she's already being vocal and, and, and agreeing with your advocacy. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he wants to be involved, too. So, Good for him. But, yeah, so we, we, want, we want the hate crimes bill to pass as well. And I think that's going to take more coalition building. Um, and hopefully you're going to be hearing more about that over the next few years. But we do want cities to be able to track hate crimes. Um, you know, and we want property crimes to be considered hate crimes as well. We've been seeing cemeteries and mosques and synagogues being attacked. Um, and we want people to recognize that that's hate crime, that hate crimes don't just happen against people. They happen against communities and community spaces. So those things are, those things are in the works. Um, they've been in the works for a couple of years, but they will take probably just as long as that, um, as my bill took. So we're, we're hoping for maybe less than four or five years, but we'll see, we'll see what happens. And Aisha, do you have any final thoughts as we, uh, we only have about a little bit over a minute left that you'd like to share with the audience in thinking about the upcoming election, the upcoming um, uh, voting? Um, with the upcoming elections. Uh, municipal um, elections, really, yes. Yeah, with the upcoming municipal elections, I think people, um, I just really hope that people take into consideration what they would like to see for the city of Minneapolis and their city themselves in the city that they're located in. And um, look into the candidates that will be representing them. I think this election is uh, a big gear up for what will be coming up in 2022, which would be the midterm elections. Um, and that will have a huge impact on how Minnesota moves forward in, in the next couple of years. And so this is kind of just like one of those first steps into the bigger uh, move and um we, I just need to, we need to be diligent and we need to be aware of who our representatives are and how they are standing up for our communities, especially after what we've been through this last year, um, as a lot of us are recovering and um, bouncing back economically, financially, emotionally, and in every way possible at this point. Well, thank you both so much. And for more information on Reviving Sisterhood, you can go to www.revivingsisterhood.org. Great group. They're also on Facebook at Reviving Sisterhood. Thank you so much, both of you. You brought so much insight and and thoughtful conversation. I always love having you on. Have a great week. Thank you so much.